Well, good morning again, everyone. Will you please join me for a word of prayer? Dear Lord, thank you for each and every person in our church family. I thank you, Lord, that we were able to make it here today, and we came here for a reason. We put it on our calendar for a reason. Because, Lord, it's not like the church has a monopoly on your presence. You're with us wherever we go. But, Lord, when we come here, we get to experience you together. We get to encounter you together. We get to hear your word together. We get to worship you together. And that, that is such a gift, God. Lord, as Kid said earlier, we don't know what we have until we're missing it, until we're missing our church family. So I thank you, Lord, that we were able to gather here today. And Lord, I pray that we would encounter you here today. Through your word, we know you have something to say to us today, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you will speak through me, that you will help us to have discernment and understanding as we read your word, your Holy Spirit would guide us closer to you today. We love you. We thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. So remember, as we've been saying, these letters are written to separate churches, but they're all written by Jesus. So, with that in mind, let's start. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, in this passage, Jesus makes a reference, makes an allusion to Balak and Balaam. Do you remember that story of Balak and Balaam and the Israelites? That story is found in the book of Numbers. Now, in that story, Israel is marching on. They're getting closer to the promised land. Now, as they're getting closer, the people are coming out to stop them from entering the promised land, but nobody can stop them. Every army that comes out to stop them is defeated by Israel. So the Moabites, 
in the Midianites, they see this huge army of the Israelites, this huge people that are coming through. They're terrified. And so their king, Balak, the king of Moab, says, well, I can't stop this army, this people with my army. They're too strong. They're too big. They're too great. But maybe I can curse them. Maybe I can curse them and that will stop them. So he hired Balaam who was practiced in divination, who was a seer. And so Balaam came and he said, I can only say what the Lord puts in my mouth, what he says. So every time Balak had Balaam go up to curse the Israelites, a blessing over the Israelites came out of Balak's mouth. And that happened over and over and over again. Every time Balak got up, or Balaam got up to speak, God put a blessing of Israel in his mouth. And that's what he spoke. So really... They couldn't do anything. They couldn't fight them. They couldn't curse them. But Balaam, before he left, had a pretty good idea. He said, I know what we can do. We can send some of the Moabite women into their camp, and we can hurt them that way. And you know what? It worked. We read in the book of Numbers that the Moabite women went into their camp It says that the men committed sexual immorality with the women. They ate food sacrificed to their gods. They bowed down and worshiped their gods. And the Lord was angry with them. And he sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. That is the story that Jesus mentions in this passage. Look, how was Balak able to inflict harm on the Israelites? Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. How? How was he able to inflict harm from the inside out? By causing them to turn from the truth to a lie. By causing them to turn their eyes off of the truth, the one true God, and turn to false gods. Now, fast forward to our church that we're looking at today, Pergamum. Where did the Christians in Pergamum live? Well, Jesus tells us where Satan has his throne. Now that's kind of confusing. What does he mean by that? Well, let's just think about who Satan is. Who did Jesus say that Satan is? He's the father of lies. That's where they live, where the father of lies has his throne. So look, the Christians in Pergamum, they were surrounded by lies. That seems to be the heart of what Jesus is saying there. You are surrounded, you are daily assaulted by an onslaught of lies. But the Christians in Pergamum had been faithful to Jesus. He says it at the first part where he praises them, tells them what they've been doing well. He says that you've been faithful to me. But look, Since they were letting false teaching into their church, like the Israelites, think about the Israelites. They let the Moabite women into their camp, and that's what the church in Pergamum was doing. They were letting false teaching into their camp. And because they were doing that, they were in danger of falling into the same trap that Balaam set for the Israelites. And what was that trap that was set for them that they fell into? Compromising on the truth saying this is the truth but it's okay we can worship that god too 
They had the truth, but they compromised on the truth. That's the trap that they fell into. And that's the trap that the church in Pergamum was in danger of falling into. And if we aren't careful, that is the trap that we will fall into. If we aren't careful, we will fall into the trap of compromising on the truth. When are we in danger of compromising on the truth? Is that something that happens to churches today? Yes. It happened to churches, it happened to the Israelites then, it happened to churches right here, and it happens to churches today. When does it happen? It happens when we stop submitting to the authority of God's word to us in scripture. When that happens, we're in danger of compromising on the truth. When we twist scripture to say what we want it to say, we're in danger of compromising on the truth. When we say that Jesus is not the way, the truth, the life, he's one of of many, well then we're in danger of compromising on the truth. When we care more about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us, we are in danger of compromising on the truth. And when we follow our cravings, instead of following God's commandments, we're in danger of compromising on the truth. We're in the same danger that they were in, which is why we have the same word that they had. That's why Jesus speaks it to us. Not to say, oh, well, this is just our lot in life. No, this is something that we need to be aware of so that we can address. And, you know, it's kind of surprising when you read how much of the New Testament is actually a response to false teachers and their false teaching infiltrating the church. If you look at First and Second Timothy, we talked about Second Timothy last week, but First and Second Timothy, they were both written by Paul as a response to false teaching. Paul was writing to Timothy as he was going into the Ephesian church saying, hey, these are the false teachers in here. Here's what they teach. You need to replace them with teachers who will teach the truth. So in the very last chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul gives Timothy one final charge in his last letter that we have to Timothy. Probably his last letter before he died was killed. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to his charge. He says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach your opinion. Preach how you feel. No, preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will will not put up with sound doctrine, the truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Like that, that was Paul's final charge to Timothy in the church. What was Paul's final charge to Timothy? Don't compromise on the truth. What was Jesus' charge to the church in Pergamum? Don't compromise on the truth.
And that's Jesus' call to us, Lighthouse Baptist Church, today. Don't compromise on the truth. When we compromise on the truth, what happens? When we compromise on the truth, we compromise two things according to our passage today. We compromise our witness and we compromise our identity. That's what we compromise. So the first one, when we compromise on the truth, we compromise on our witness. Look with me at two verses. First, let's look at verse 12 again. He said to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now look at verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them, those who are teaching these false teachings, holding to them, with the sword of my mouth. So look, what does Jesus have? He has a sharp, sharp double-edged sword, right? Where is this sharp double-edged sword coming from? His mouth. So is, is Jesus, is this a literal image? No, this is supposed to symbolize something. This is supposed, if it's a sword coming out of its mouth, it's supposed to symbolize that these are God's words, right? These are Jesus' words. And what does the Bible say about God's words? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than what? Any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Why is God's word described as double-edged, razor sharp? Because God's words are not always easy to take, right? They say a lot of things that, if we're honest, we don't like. We don't want them to say all the time what they say. There's a lot of things that feel good that God says, but there's a lot of things that challenge us and rebuke us for the way that we're living, the way that we're thinking, the way that we're speaking. So look, God's words are not always easy to take, but for those who take them, for those who accept them, they act as a surgeon's scalpel. And if you need surgery, even though the surgeon's scalpel might hurt, you still need it. Even though God's words don't always say what we want them to say, they're always what we need to hear. We always need them. So look, look at verse 13, the ending of verse 13. He says, Yet you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So look, we've, we've, we've talked about how the word of God is sharp, double-edged. It's sharp. Now, the reason Antipas, whoever he was, the reason that he was killed was why? Well, because Antipas spoke God's words. And God's words, when they're spoken honestly and truthfully, they're sharp. They're sharp. And people, some people submit to God's words. Some people submit to the surgeon's scalpel, which is hard and scary to do. But other people fight back. So if you speak to people with God's words, they might fight back. And in this case, because he spoke with God's words, people fought back and Antipas was killed. But at the same time, Antipas could not have had an effective ministry 
unless he had used that same sword. That same sword that cut people and they didn't like it and they killed him was also the same sword that he used to be what? A faithful witness to Jesus. Look, when we have the truth, we have a sharp sword. We have a sharp sword. But when we compromise on the truth, what happens? Our sword becomes dull. Yeah, we may not get in any trouble for it, but our witness, it dies. Our sword becomes dull, it becomes blunted. And when our sword becomes dull, our witness becomes dull. I've shared this with some of you before, maybe all of you. But growing up, when I first dis- discovered the Bible and started reading the Bible, I got so excited that I put it in my backpack and I thought, I'm going to bring this to school with me. I'm going to read it. Any chance I get between classes, during lunch, during art class, uh, after I finished taking a test, and I just ate it up and I loved it. And I remember my goal going to school was honestly just don't get noticed, you know, just survive. If I do get noticed, it should be for something good, not for something embarrassing. So you can imagine when I started reading my Bible in school, I would get some looks like, what? Why are you reading that? And of course, I didn't like that a whole lot. And some people would say, why are, you, why are you reading the Bible? I didn't like that either. You know, I remember one person saying, hey, this isn't Sunday school, you know. I definitely didn't like that. I wasn't suffering nearly as much as the people in Pergamum were. But in my mind, that was enough reason to not bring the Bible to school anymore. Now, what I should have paid attention to was the fact that I was starting to see other people bringing their Bible to school. I should have paid attention to that. I should have let that encourage me. But no, I paid attention to the people that didn't seem to think that that was a great idea, or at least thought that that was pretty weird. I didn't want to be weird. So I didn't bring my Bible anymore. My witness went from being sharp to non-existent. Why? Well, because I believed a lie. I let a lie go into my head and go down deep into my heart. And that lie was that what people think about you is more important than what God says to you. That's the lie that I thought and took into me, and it affected my witness. But fast forward to later on in high school, I started hanging out with my cousins, Jacob and Jacqueline. Now you can imagine, you know, when you have older cousins, you think they're, or at least I did, I thought they were just the coolest ever. And I wanted to be like them. I was super impressed with them. They were role models for me. But the most impressive thing about them was just how, how natural their faith was expressed. How much they didn't care what other people thought about their faith. It didn't seem forced when they talked about it. They had a hope and a joy and a peace about them that I thought, I want what they have. I'm super attracted to that. I thought that hiding my faith would bring joy to my life. It's doing the opposite. And yet they have all the joy and peace and hope that I am looking for. And I decided, partly because of their witness, they played a huge part in this, okay, I'm not going to care what people think about anymore. I am going 
to be honest about my faith and not just honest about it, I am going to bring my Bible to school. I'm going to talk about it. And I did. I started bringing it. And other people were reading their Bible. I'm not saying they did it because I did it, but I, I had so many more opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, to talk to people about my faith because I stopped caring more about what other people thought about me than I cared what God said to me. That again became the primary motivation of my life. And a lot of that had to do with the witness of seeing Jacob and Jacqueline, my cousins, and seeing that that was the biggest motivation of their life. Look at the beginning of verse 17. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is manna? Manna, when the Israelites were marching towards the promised land, God provided them food. This bread from heaven would rain down and they always, always, always had enough. For the time that they were marching, till the time they made it to the promised land, they were always sustained by the manna. Now back to me and my cousins. I wanted what they had. I wanted to be sustained by what they had. What sustained my cousins? The truth. God's word. Jesus. That's our manna. The truth, that's what sustains us. That's what we live off of. Look at what Jesus said in John 6, verse 48 through 51. He said, I am the bread of life. The manna, that was just pointing to me. I'm the true manna that you need. He said, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Look, how are we sustained by the truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm what was meant to sustain you all along. Nothing else can sustain you. But how are we sustained by the truth? Well, we simply accept the truth that God has sent from above. And in Jesus, we do see the truth that God has sent from above. And yet, now, just like then, the truth is constantly over and over rejected. But that has everything to do with our witness. Because when people see what is sustaining us, they'll ask us, where did you get that bread? Where did you get that food that you're living off of? I want some too. And then we can tell them what that bread is and where we got it. The living bread that comes from above Jesus, who is given to us, not because of anything that we've done, but freely as a gift. But we cannot do that if we compromise on the truth. If we compromise on the truth, we compromise our witness. But we also compromise our identity. Look at verse 13. 
Verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. What is Jesus calling us to do here in this letter? So much, all these letters that we've been looking at these three weeks have been calls for us to hold on. The first week, the call to hold on to our first love. The second week, the call to persevere in suffering. Hold on to him, even in suffering. Now this week, the call to hold on to truth. And in calling us to hold on to truth, what is Jesus calling us to? Well, just what he said in verse 13. To remain true to his name. That's what it means to hold on to the truth. Look, in remaining true to his name, we find out our name. What is our name? What's our identity? A name for us might just be a word, but a name to them meant an identity. What is our name? What's our identity? We are the people of God. That is our identity. And who we are comes from who we are in Him. Do you see that? What's true of Him is true of us when we believe in Him, when we're in Him. And if you don't believe me, look at the chapter before. In chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, look what he says. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before His throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who is Jesus? The faithful witness. What did Jesus say about Antipas? He's my faithful witness. What do they have? The same title. When you believe in Jesus, your identity becomes wrapped in and wrapped up with the identity of Jesus. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? Probably one of my favorite verses. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So look, when we compromise on the truth, what do we compromise on? We compromise on being a faithful witness. And when we compromise on being a faithful witness, we compromise on our identity. That's what we're compromising on. But the good news is, once we accept the truth of the gospel, we don't have to live for an identity anymore. Now, sometimes we still do that, right? I know that I did that. Even though I was a Christian in middle school, I was still trying to live for an identity. But the good news is we don't have to do that. We, when we believe in Jesus, we can live from an identity. And what's that identity that we're living from? God's people that he's already purchased for himself. Look what Paul says. And this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. This is a long passage, but as I'm reading it, I want you to think about how he compares who we used to be to who we now are in Jesus. So he says, As for you, 
you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, you were people of the lie. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us, what are we now? Alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, he did that. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up, that's who we are now, with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, make us witnesses expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Think of the manna coming down from heaven. Not by works so that no one can boast. For who are we now? We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Who were we? Dead. Who are we now? Alive. Who were we? Slaves. Who are we now? Free. Who were we? Enemies of God. Who are we now? The people of God. Look, when the Israelites accepted the teaching of Balaam, what did they do? They were the people of God, but in accepting the teaching of Balaam, worshiping the false gods, compromising on the truth, they denied who they are. And when we accept the teaching of Balaam, when we compromise the truth, when we trade the truth for a lie, so do we. We do the same thing. We deny who we are. Are. But look at verse 17 again. This time we're going to read all of it. Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now that's weird, right? Jesus. In the last two letters that we've looked at, Jesus has at the end made one promise. Now he's promising two things. He promises us manna from heaven, hidden manna from heaven, but he also promises us a white stone with a new name on it, with a name that only the person who receives it knows. Now, here's a question. What do those two have to do with each other? Do they have anything to do with each other at all? What does a white stone have to do with free bread from heaven? Well, I want you to think about this. William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, he points out something that can help us understand what Jesus might be referring to here. He says, one of the features of the Roman Empire was free doles of bread and the free provision of circuses, gladiatorial games, and other entertainments. The tickets which entitled to free food and to admission to the entertainments 
often took the form of a white stone. Do you see what the white stone is with a new name on it? It's an invitation with a new name on it. An invitation that comes with a new identity to truth. Look, you have been invited by Jesus to be sustained by him forever. He has a banquet of hidden manna, of truth. And you're invited by him to be sustained by him forever. He's giving you an invitation with a new name on it. Don't throw it away. Don't throw your white stone away. Don't compromise on the truth. Look at what Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32. He said, if you hold on to, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Hold on to the truth and don't ever let go. Let's pray. Lord, when we hold our Bibles, Lord, it's heavy. And Lord, we are so thankful that you've poured so much truth down for us. And yet, Lord, we are so often turning to false gods, to a lie. We're so often compromising on the truth, saying, oh, I don't like that part of your word, or I, I like this part, but not that part. And uh, I hear you, but I want to do this. I'd rather do this, Lord. And that doesn't set us free. Your word sets us free. You gave it to us for us, Lord. Please help us to see that, that the manna isn't there just for us to look at, but for us to eat, to take in. Lord, you freely invited us into it to enjoy it forever. But we can't do that if we compromise on the truth, if we trade the truth for a lie, if we drop our white stone and trade it for something else. Lord, I pray that we would value the truth. I pray that we would hold on to the truth, even when we may not like the truth when we hear it. It's always what we need to hear. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that ultimately the ultimate and final word from you is your son, Jesus, the word made flesh, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, because when we see him, we see you. And that's the only way we can see you is through him. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us, the truth, through Jesus the true bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat. We love you. We thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.